Hey guys, this is Silent Struggle Podcast, and I'm your host, Devin. This podcast was created as a safe place to be heard, validated, and empowered through the incredible stories from the Black community. We talk to everyone from kids to grandparents. We touch on everything from investing to self-care, all while learning about the contributions and the struggles of the Black community. Again, I'm your host, Devin, and this is the Silent Struggle Podcast. If you're new, welcome. Thank you again for lending an ear. I hope you find this healing and empowering while also informative. If you're a regular, welcome back, and thank you again for your continuous support. I do appreciate it from the bottom of my heart. Growing as a community has always been the goal, so thank you for being a part of that. And just a reminder, the views and opinions expressed on the Silent Struggle podcast are those of myself and or my guests. The content provided is for informational purposes only. For more detailed information, please visit our website, thesilentstrugglepodcast.com. All right, so in today's episode, I want to discuss mental health in the classroom. I have Samari Wilkerson as my guest today. Welcome, Samari. Why don't you tell uh, the listeners a little bit about yourself and how you got to where you are today? All right. Hi, I am a middle school teacher. I teach seventh grade English um, and social studies, and I've taught science in the past. And I've been a teacher for about six years now. Um, Before I taught in the States, I taught in Honduras for four years, and I really started to love teaching and being in the classroom so when I came back to the states I continued teaching and I noticed that um, in underserved communities there was a lack of focus on mental health um, but there was a really high focus on testing and results and there was a big disconnect with people not realizing that they might not be seeing the academic results that they wanted because they weren't um, attending to the social and emotional needs of the students. Okay, okay. Did someone like specifically inspire you or was it an experience or something like that? Like what was your calling to being a teacher? Um, Well, I was really lucky and I had a lot of great teachers growing up that pushed me and that encouraged me. Um, And I also was really lucky that I took a lot of honors and AP classes when I was in high school. And I kind of got into that bubble where I kind of assumed that everyone was having a similar experience. Uh, okay. everyone was learning in the classroom yeah. that people felt comfortable that you know they were being acknowledged and listened to and then I started talking to some friends who um, didn't take the same type of classes as me in high school and that went to different schools mm-hmm. once I got to college and I realized that everyone wasn't receiving the same kind of education and that there was actually a big disparity in the quality of educators and the quality of services that students were receiving. And a lot of it seemed to be based on um, where they lived and what they had access to and their skin color. Yeah. I experienced that in high school as well, because again, you do that in high school, you typically have, you know, like AP classes, honors classes and stuff like that. We even had down to like basic classes and the basic kids didn't Mm -hmm. have the same type of, you know, drive exactly. push and I'm, I'm talking about from the teachers they didn't have the same type of drive and push and stuff like that from yep. from the teachers for those kids yep okay what what made you pick like pick that level like what made you go for like middle <laughs> school age 
Well, um, a lot of people um, hate middle school, especially teachers. They're like, oh, I couldn't do that job. I could do that job. So that drew me to it because I was like, okay, well, if people are saying that they don't like this age, if their kids are so complicated, that they're so difficult, this is that step. This is that moment before high school, before college, where they need a lot of guidance. They need support. They need, you know, tools to figure out how and who they want to be. So if there's such a negative stigma that they're getting just because of how old they are, just because of that age group, then they're really not being serviced in the The right way. And I thought that this is, you know, an age, it's a critical moment. Middle school is a critical moment where, you know, things happen, you get put into boxes that then follow you to high school, that then affect your opportunities after high school. And I thought it was important to help as many students in that age group as possible. That's right. That's right. So how do, how diverse would you say like your, your district is, your school district that you, that you work in? How diverse is that area? Um, well, to be honest, in my class this past year, when I was teaching sixth grade, there it was 100% African-American. I had all African-American students in my classroom. But it's very interesting because a lot of um, the white teachers who were teaching in the school talked about how much they loved it because it was so diverse. And I was like, I think you mean black, but okay. <laughs> like, you know, it's kind of that moment where it's yeah. like, you know, there, and there is, of course, there is diversity in the black community. For you know, sure. It's not a monolithic experience, but everyone was black. So there was that level of comfort in the classroom yeah. and, like, that ability to talk about things that black kids go through. And that was really awesome, and that has been really awesome for me. Um, I mostly taught in schools and in environments that have mostly African-American students. Okay. Between, like, 95 and 98% African-American students. Since we got on, you know, you were saying about some of the white teachers were talking about like, oh, my God, it's so diverse. Do teachers in your district go through any type of, you know, uh, implicit bias or cultural awareness or cultural sensitivity training or anything like that? Um, Yeah. So in general, um, there is DEI training. So um, in DEI, that's diversity, equity um, and inclusion training. We talk about. Um, different kids and experiences and how um, we try or we were told that we were trauma-informed but to be quite honest we had maybe two trainings the whole school year on what it means to be trauma-informed and a lot of the time it wasn't um, very in-depth so a lot of the work for teachers who really wanted to be trauma-informed and have that in their classroom was back on us to go and find more resources and pull them together because um, the school is kind of more focused on the academic results and boosting scores and getting money and funding and all those things. Do you think it's necessary to obviously have all this training, you know, so you have a safe place for for students and specifically, you know, black and brown students? Is it necessary to have the DEI training? Yes, I think it's very necessary to have these types of trainings because when you think about it, especially for people who are coming from outside of a community, to enter a community, to enter a classroom, to enter the spaces, and then meet the people, how how to communicate with parents, how to choose what text you want to use for an English class, how to word your problems for a math class, how to make things accessible in science and relevant and what types of history lessons to teach. All of those things are so important, and they're not going to be the same from district to district, from school to school, even from classroom to classroom. And we have to normalize 
a more individualized or a more student-centered learning plan that encourages students to be themselves and not to try to fit them into a box of what we believe and try to close an achievement gap that is pretty made up anyway and based um, on white supremacy and kind of white classist culture of bringing poor black and brown kids up to meet the standards of suburban white kids. I couldn't say it any better than that. I mean, it definitely is very, <laughs> you know, Eurocentric in, in the narratives and perspectives that have been sold to us. So, you know, we definitely do need to learn to teach, you know, full histories, like full histories um, that like reflect a diverse world and stuff like that. So for sure. Okay, so you, you said nine, about 90 Eight percent of ninety-eight percent of the 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 schools that you teach in are predominantly black, yeah. right? Um, have you ever seen mm-hmm. the schools with a higher portion of you know black students tend to criminalize you know student misbehavior? Have you ever experienced this or um, seen this yeah. as a teacher? Okay, could you speak to that? Definitely, just a little bit? I think of course. Um, so one thing that happens, um, especially so my school, um, it is a charter and okay. Charters are public schools. They are um, receive public school funding, but they're kind of individualized and they make their own curriculum, their own learning plan. Okay. Um, so the charter that I work at focuses on being a college prep school, so preparing students for college. And a lot of the practices that we have, like students have to walk in a certain way, they have to sit in a certain way called slant. So that means they have to be sitting from kindergarten with their hands folded, with their heads up. Um, they have to nod when they are like to show that they're listening all these things that are really really strict from the first day of kindergarten they're trained to do these certain behaviors and when they don't they get checks or they get like demerits and when they get a certain amount they receive a consequence whether it be detention or suspension and things like that and those start at kindergarten level so from the time that they're five years old where it's normal to play be free and run around they're being told, you know, they're being trained to be confined, to sit in the proper way, to not speak, like, um, to raise their hands in a certain way. And it's all, it's all very damaging for the students, but even sometimes for the teachers. Like, for me, my first year there, I wasn't into that. I was like, no, like, I'm going to do my own thing. Yeah. And then there was a lot of pushback from administration. That's like, no, this is the way that we do it. These are the results that we want. And other schools have gotten results by doing this. So this is the way that we do it. And what I noticed in my students when we did try to do things in that way is they lost their ability to critically think about things in front of them and to problem solve on their own because they were so used to being told exactly what to do with their bodies, with their minds. And every second, they weren't able to come up with solutions and solve their own problems. So I was like, no, like I can't. This isn't this isn't serving our children. This isn't helping them and preparing them for a better world and even preparing them for more opportunities. Because yeah. we're just training them in compliance. And we know that compliance isn't gonna save them. We've seen this uh, compliance doesn't save black and brown children, doesn't save black and brown people, yeah. especially when they're being confronted in violent situations. It's not gonna save them. So we have to give them other tools. We have to give them actual resources. And that's been my experience, at least with it. For sure, for sure. Because time and time again, again, compliance doesn't mean that, you know, we'll make it out or make it out of a situation by being compliant, especially, like you said, in those dangerous situations. Um, well, let me ask you this. Can you weigh in a little bit on the, the that Grace case in Michigan? You know, specifically, Judge 
Mary Ellen Brennan, while denying the child's early release, said, you're exactly where you're supposed to be. Um, what does that imply about society's view on Blacks, especially children who may have experienced some trauma in their past that may lead to behavioral issues down the road? Well, it shows you exactly how the prison, the school-to-prison pipeline works. We saw a girl who was struggling. She was clearly having issues. She was struggling beforehand. And one of her conditions was that she had to complete all of her schoolwork. And if the condition is for her to complete all of her schoolwork, then the solution should be to give her more tools so that she could complete that work and be successful. But instead, she was criminalized and locked up and told she was exactly where she needed to be because she wasn't valued as someone that could do better or could be better. They saw her as another check in the system, as another statistic, as someone who wasn't capable. And that's what we see in schools all the time. We see kids who get back to back to back suspensions for behaviors, you know, they come back one day suspensions for being disrespectful. Well, what is disrespectful? And then you ask students about what happened and their version of the story is someone said something to them and it was hurtful, so they reacted. But when we only listen to one side, which is which in this situation could be an adult side or someone who's in the position of power, we constantly see black and brown kids get criminalized, put out of schools, thrown into dangerous and unfortunate situations. Mm -hmm. And now we see that in this situation, this young girl, now she's in a place where she's definitely scared. She's not getting any tools or resources that she needs to be more successful in the future. And then when she's released, if something happens and she ends up unfortunately falling into another bad situation, the answer will be, look, we told you what was going to happen, not look what happens when we don't give people the resources that they need to do better. And I think that that's something that constantly happens with black and brown students. They're constantly being told, look, that, look, we, they're not enough. They're not enough. They're not enough. Look at them fail. Look at them fail. Look at them fail. But we're not saying look at the system that made it impossible for them to succeed. They're not failing the system. Like, we're failing the students. Like, we're failing them. We're doing them a disservice from jump. And it's easier to blame someone else than actually look at ourselves. So, yeah, I mean, that was a perfect way to sum that up. Do you know any Do you know any schools in your district who, you know, may utilize police, like, on their campuses? And do you think that affects students, you know, in the way that they do behave? Definitely. Um, I've seen a lot of schools that have school resource officers. So school resource officers could be um, actual police officers um, who either are off-duty or sometimes are supplied by, um, like, the regular police force during the day or sometimes it's retired police officers, things like that. But their presence in a school is used as fear. It's used to scare kids. Um, I don't know if you saw, but there was a video of, like, a second or third grader that was put in handcuffs to scare them into behaving well and listening in the classroom. So they're not used as a resource to help students, but they're used as a fear tactic to control students. And that just reinforces trauma that they've experienced. And we see it when kids, like this is something that I said a little while ago, but like we have money for resource officers, but we don't have money for classroom resources. Like we don't have money to buy kids books or to make flexible seating or to meet the needs of our students. Um, in the, the public school district that I work in, the, the teachers have a 500, like one pack of 500 sheets of paper that they're supposed to use for the whole month. 
and that's supposed to get them through a whole month. But they have money for resource officers, and they have money for metal detectors at the high school, but they don't have money, um, like, for basic supplies and things that kids actually need to succeed and things to help kids who have maybe different abilities get the tools that they need. And it's just so crazy how this keeps happening and how teachers all over keep saying, hey, we need more. And instead of more resources, we just get more things to control behaviors. When if we had resources, we wouldn't need to control behaviors. The behaviors would be in check because the students would have what they need. That's it right there. You give the children the resources, the behaviors then start to change. Exactly. Okay, so 2020, obviously, with everything that's going on, um, it's brought, you know, some crazy upheaval. It's brought some crazy upheaval in school and in schooling. Um, do you think that transition that most schools did going virtual was handled properly? You know, if we were already short on resources to begin with. I think that switching over to virtual learning, especially for a lot of us, it happened with like a day's notice because basically it was like, on a Friday, we left school. We asked that Friday, hey, we see a lot of schools shutting down. Is this going to happen? We were told no, no, no. Saturday, we were told no, no, no. Sunday morning, no, school is going to continue. By Sunday evening, it was like, oh, actually, we're not going back. So, back, <laughs> you know, the change was so fast. And yeah. teachers were just like, what? Like, we don't have, like, I left all my stuff at school because you all said that we were going to be going back and that yeah. we were going to, you know, continue as normal so it was we were able to bring attention to the fact very quickly that there's a problem with communication and then when it came down to it if we are doing virtual learning it brought a huge light on the access and equity that so many students don't have access to what they need don't have access to technology or internet or wi-fi and then you see people were then like okay we'll give free wi-fi to these people but then you see a lot of kids like don't have a stable address they shift homes or stay with whoever is available so it's like okay now we're seeing these problems and we're seeing we you know kids have been lost kids have been you know we don't know where they are anymore that they we weren't able to contact them so basically since march they haven't received anything and then the response has been well those type of people or you know people in those situations and see that happening and it's like wait a minute like what do you mean those type of people no this is a system that has disproportionately disadvantaged these students and their families and now their families are struggling to survive making meet. we see this happening with lunch as well like a lot of kids at my school, 100% of the students received free breakfast and lunch. Yeah. So when parents don't have access to that, then what are they going to do? Like, that's just another layer. So we're seeing all the layers now that we once were viewed as separate. We saw everything as being its own individual box. We see how they're interconnected and the intersectionality of the inequity in our public school system. Is there something that parents can do? Is there something they can do to help? I think the best thing that I've seen parents do is really advocate for what they need for their specific families. Because there have been parents who say, hey, I need to go back to work, but I also don't feel comfortable with my students, with my children doing virtual learning because we don't have access at home. What are our options? And like really being vocal and and not being afraid or not feeling ashamed because there's nothing to be ashamed of 
if you need help. And any district or school that is making families feel that way should be ashamed of themselves and really needs to reevaluate their purpose and what their role is in a student's life. But when parents advocate for their needs, because a lot of times, unfortunately, people in administrative positions are extremely out of touch from the communities. They're not from the communities. They don't live there. They don't know what's going on. So once families start advocating for themselves and saying, hey, this is what we need, this is what we need, then they'll hear them and they they have to act. You know, they the, re the responsible thing to do is to act. And I've seen school districts act based on parent interest and parent needs um, being expressed to them. That's important. Everyone out there, you need to advocate for your children. Again, if you don't advocate for them, no one else is going to. Like mm -hmm. Samari just said that, like, again, a lot of times the administrators are not from the actual communities that they're servicing. They're not from there. So they don't understand, again, what's going on in the community. So if you don't advocate for your community, if you don't advocate for your student, no one else is going to. What are, what are some things that you wish that, you know, your school district would would do in order to in order to support the black students a little bit more? Um, one thing that I think, especially during this time, since we're heading back to school soon and since it probably will be in some way, maybe only back two days a week or something like that. I think that it would be really important for our school district to focus on extending grace and incorporating social emotional learning into our studies realizing that all students don't have the same access and the same time frame and that this is an emotionally trying and stressful time for parents students and teachers so looking for ways to just calm the situation as much as possible without adding additional pressure to students and teachers during this time and especially for our black and brown students that rely so much on our schools for childcare, meals, friendship, like it's a safe place in the community. Um, just finding resources to make sure that our families are still getting access to their needs, making sure that they're still having access to food services if that's what they need. Um, our school district offers cab services to certain families, making sure that they're still having access to the things that they need so that their lives that have been extremely disrupted by everything that's going on, they can have some sense of normalcy and some sense of consistency with their day-to-day -day activities. Do you think sometimes that we think that there's a stigma around using these services where it's like, oh, we're just being lazy, we're not you know, putting forth our best effort? Um, I do. I believe that there is a stigma, but if you, you know, if we look at how things have gone, we saw the majority of the essential workers who are working in grocery stores, who are working as, you know, um, doing cleaning services in hospitals and things like that, bus drivers, all of those things, they are people of color who are hardworking, who are doing their absolute best, and they're still not getting what they need from the system, mm -hmm. so they need additional services. So I think that the stigma and that the that the what's going on here should be directed towards the system and not towards individuals who have no control over what laws are passed, over minimum wage. You know, we our role is to get out and vote and to elect people who have our best interests at heart. But unfortunately, as we've seen lately, that isn't always the case. So we yeah. have to advocate for ourselves and say, you know this is what we do this is how hard we're working 
And even if people want to say, you know, well, they're lazy, blah, 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 that doesn't mean that the children don't deserve to eat. You know, that doesn't mean that the children in the community don't deserve a safe place or an education. Those things that, those things don't, one thing doesn't mean the other. So the kids still deserve to eat. They still deserve access to food. They still deserve a quality education, regardless of whether their parents work or where they work or how much money they have. That's right. How is your school or like your district looked at the, like the larger picture that, you know, addressing the needs of black students and brown students that they might encounter? Like, so again, those free breakfast, lunches, online learning support, you know, other therapies. How will all that stuff get handled? Yeah, um, so for right now, um, we're working on plans and they have made like an A, B, and a C plan on what that will look like okay. and what services we will be able to provide students once the school year starts again and who, what students are coming back, what students will still need services. And especially for students um, who are receiving like speech therapy or receiving like occupational therapy, anything like that. We're trying to find the best way to do that, especially if we have to go virtual. So I think that right now the conversations are being had and um, teachers really are standing up and advocating for their students and saying, hey, I have, if we're going back to school, my classroom is only this big. And normally you ask me to put 30 students in here. How is that going to work? What is that going to look like? And actually saying like to administrators, you've given us this amount of space to work with now you show us how you want this to work and if you can't get it done then don't expect us to we need a better plan so just holding our administrators accountable there it is so with these changes in like how you know the educational and you know mental health services will be provided is it a real possibility that black and brown students will actually experience a gap in these services it is there is a real possibility because even as um, our lives change, our funding has still been cut. So, you know, we've still been told to work with less money than we had last year and figure out how to make it work. So services were gonna be cut anyway, you know, times or amount of services we were gonna have were gonna be cut anyway. In the beginning of our last school year, we only had a part-time counselor available. She was working between two schools. And now they're saying, oh, maybe we can go back to that model since it's going to be online. But not taking into consideration that that still means that the counselor will have double the work and she'll still have to, even if it is online, communicate with double the number of families. So there's still those situations where because schools are not properly funded and we don't have the money that we need to properly staff our schools, that we're not going to be able to provide all of our students with all of the minutes that they deserve and that their different, um, you know, IEPs or whatever their situation is required. So truthfully, are there really enough counselors to provide services to those in need? Um, I think that it's a mixture. I think that because schools aren't funded, because the money isn't given to where it needs to be given, um, especially when it comes to schools, we're not able to hire enough staff to do the work that needs to be done because if you think about it even having 20 students in one particular building or maybe even 30 50 students if you double that if you put one person only part-time they're still dealing with the same amount of students you know so yeah. 
where not having the money, not having the funding really has impacted and kept a lot of great counselors out of schools or pushed them to go to private practice or somewhere else because it's just exhausting. It's the same thing with teachers. Like burnout is real when you have a classroom that is only truly large enough to fit 20 kids, but you're putting 30, 35 students in a classroom you realize like, oh, this is only sustainable for so long. And it pushes a lot of people who might be excellent professionals out of the field, out of counseling in schools, out of teaching in schools, out of providing services, because it's just not worth the emotional labors that it requires for so little act, like so little money to protect yourself and your family. And why is that so detrimental to growth? Like, can you explain why you believe that's so detrimental to the growth of, you know, society? Um, It's detrimental because our students at the end of the day, as everyone likes to point out, are our future. And when we have teachers who get burned out after two or three years, that breaks the continuity and it breaks the consistency that students receive. And every time you know, a teacher quits mid-year or leaves the school and the school starts over and they get a new curriculum and they look for cheaper ways to do things. Every time we cut services from our students, it sets us back and it holds our students back and limits the amount of progress that they're able to make. And when we do that, we then take steps back as we move forward so we're not really actually moving forward towards a new anything we're just getting stuck in the same spot and wondering what's happening we're wondering why students are performing but then we're not giving teachers anything they need and we see teachers leaving the profession and bulk and in mass screaming we don't have what we need and people are still asking hey what's the problem even though we know the problem teachers don't have what they need so students aren't getting what they need and when our students aren't getting what they need then the future of our society is at risk what about that study uh, i forget who exactly it was but it was a study uh published in 2017 or 2018 that has had the rate of suicide among like black children at almost two times their white peers do you think that's because like we're losing some of those like important teachers? Um, yeah, I think that black and brown children that live in underserved communities learn about loss and abandonment very young in one way or another. And when I first started in school, kids would always ask, oh, are you coming back? Are you coming back? And I remember never asking a teacher that in my entire school career. I never was like, oh, I wonder if this teacher is going to come back next year. But because black and brown children are so used to teachers cycling out after just one or two years or being so used to not having that consistency in people in their lives and the buildings that they go into every day, that's a normal question. And that, I think, contributes to black and brown children feeling or experiencing higher rates of suicide because they don't have as much access to services and quality people who are able to be there and help them through difficult times, whether it be counselors, teachers, social workers, they don't have access to it because people are getting burnt out and leaving and they're not able to have people actually there for them, helping them through those difficult times. So how do we make sure that they they understand, like, you know, students understand that they don't need to be void of emotion? How do you see us changing that? 
Um, I see us changing that by the way that we talk about black and brown students and the way that we show them black and brown experiences. So for me, one thing that I do in my classroom and one thing that I know a lot of other teachers do, we don't only learn about the black experience through slavery and the civil rights movement. If we continue to only show our black and brown students trauma and only show them their people through a traumatic lens, then they're gonna think that that's just a part of who they are, that trauma is something that is theirs. But we have to start showing them moments of joy, excellence, happiness, and let them know that it's okay to feel those things too. And it's okay to work through hard times, but you don't have to be stuck and bound to that trauma. And I think that that's really important because we've done such a terrible job at, you know, valuing black and brown life that that savior mentality comes even to other black and brown people. Like me as an educator, so I have to check myself and think, okay, what is my privilege? Because I can't think that all my students are suffering all of the time. That's crazy because that's not true. But that's the narrative that has been built so for so long is that you know black people have all these problems yeah we're conditioned exactly we're conditioned to believe that being black is inherently a problem when it's actually not it's pretty awesome and great and i want <laughs> you did right start like, letting kids know that yeah like fabulous so i want our kids to see that and our students to see that and just keep reinforcing that idea that actually everything you are is awesome yes there are hard things but everything that you are your skin your hair your eyes your lips the music you listen to the food you eat all of it is awesome and amazing and i think that we have to start ingraining that into every aspect of our society not just in our schools but definitely in our schools for children but in the way media presents in the way that politics run everything has to start valuing the awesomeness of being black do you believe post-2020 that, that it's going to be the opportunity to revamp, you know, how we assist uh, black and brown students in, in mental health? You know, do you think that's going to be the revamp for mental health care for them? Definitely. I think that this is a critical moment where change can happen. And this is a moment where we can say we haven't been serving these communities. We have the time now. We have the the, the I guess yeah we have the time to change what we've been doing and make it better and make it sustainable so that people are actually getting what they need and um, it's really up to people to listen but there are definitely the voices out there there are definitely people advocating for students and this is our moment so it's really up to us in society now to see what we do with it for sure. I mean, kids that don't feel safe, engaged or supported, like they can't show up in school and demonstrate what they know and exactly. what they've actually learned. They, they can, you know, um, a lot of times that 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 indifference and ignorance of the educators that turns into, you know, hate. And those kids tend to suffer the most that, you know, actually experience that that indifference. Exactly. You saying that it just made me think about whenever I talk to my students and they ask them, 
what's your favorite subject and whatever they say, math, science, English, whatever the answer is, it's never because of how much they actually like the content yeah. because they like numbers or because they like reading. It's always because of how the teacher made them feel. A thousand so whatever percent. subject they hate, if they hate math, if they hate English, it's, a teacher. it's because the teacher didn't like me or mm -hmm. the teacher made me feel stupid. Yep. It's always because of how the teacher made them feel. And that's what's sticking with our kids is that in places that they're made to feel like they are less, they start to hate those things. So students who don't like school, who don't want to go to school, who feel like they don't want to learn anything, have been made to feel like they don't belong in certain classrooms, like they are not worthy enough, that they don't do the right thing, and they start to hate it. It's not because they don't actually like school or learning. It's because the adults and teachers and administrators in the building have made them feel like they don't belong there. We need to really focus on making sure that we are centralizing the students and making sure that they're feeling valued, that they're feeling like they belong in a classroom, like they're feeling like learning is a place for them. For sure. And I think a first step to change that is to be more mindful of the black student. Avoid placing labels on the students who may be suffering, like, you know, silently. That means, you know, refraining from profiling or labeling black children as problematic, reevaluating discipline mm -hmm. policies that actually affect them. You know, we start off on the wrong foot automatically with a lot of black children. It kind of goes back to what we said in the very beginning. A lot of times schools that have a higher proportionate of black and brown students, those students' misbehaviors are considered criminal. It's really about like liber liberating ourselves from the false lies that we were sold of white supremacy, you know, and creating those liberating spaces for black and brown children so they can be their best selves in school. And instead of looking at it like it's criminal, just realize that, you know, they're trying to survive. They're trying to survive. That's really it. So as we wind down the episode, like what are some takeaways that you want our listeners to, you know, walk away with? I think it's important to walk away knowing that this is a pivotal moment in our society and in our education system where we can either choose to continue to ignore the mental and social emotional health needs of students in black and brown communities or we can really stand up and start making the necessary changes to give students the tools they need to succeed. And that while there are tons of awesome, spectacular educators who are advocating for our students every single day, it's still important to make sure that you, if you are an educator, that you're constantly checking your own privilege as an adult and as someone being a voice for a community um, it's important to make sure that you're actually advocating for that community and for parents to know that you do have a right to advocate for your child. You don't have to feel ashamed because of what you have or don't have, that your children are just as valuable no matter where you live and no matter what you have access to, and they deserve whatever services that you feel they need and are best for them, and that all people, not just our students, should be concerned in taking care of their mental health and social-emotional needs during this extremely difficult time that we're living in. That's it. Everyone, love yourself. Love another one. Love them hard. Love them strong. Um, you know, and be an advocate for the next person. It doesn't have to be a child. It doesn't have to be, you know someone that is mentally ill or has, you know, a disability or any, anything of that nature. Just advocate for the next man. 
So again, thank you for joining us for today's episode. A special thanks to Samari for, you know, taking the time to be on the show today. Um, do you have any social media you, you would like to share? Yes, I have an Instagram. It's simply S-I-L-M-P-Y underscore Samari, S-A-M-A-R-I-E. You can follow me there. And I talk about a lot of things um, going on in schools, things that I believe in and that I'm passionate about especially dealing with education and social justice issues. Thank you. Thank you so much, Samari. And again, guys, appreciate you tuning in. Black Minds Matter. You know, uh, let's just continue yeah. to push push the culture forward. Um, mental health in the classroom does matter. Mental health outside of the classroom matters. Let's just make sure we're taking care of ourselves, okay? Awesome. Thank you so much. All right, guys, don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode. We're also on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, the Sound of Struggle podcast. So reach out, let us know about any topics you want to hear, or if you'd like to be a guest on the show. Today's show notes and all resources can be found on our website, thesoundstrugglepodcast.com. Again, thank you for listening. Before we go, remember silence is deadly. Speak up and speak out. Keep dreaming, keep hoping, keep going. Bless. Bless.